It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage Project. Our theme for today is Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Reunification Day, which will fall on Sunday, May 29th. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein-Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, discuss a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world, and then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, explores with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. Let's begin. On May 29th, Israelis will be marking Yom Yerushalayim the final holiday of the spring cycle of the Israel High Holidays, which started with Holocaust Memorial Day, Memorial Day for fallen soldiers and terror victims, Independence Day, and then concluding with Yom Yerushalayim. Yom Yerushalayim is a day that many of you from our audience, you've never heard of, less commemorate, and even less celebrate. And if you happen to hear of it today, it will probably be because of the demonstrations and violence it inspires between Jews and Arabs. The impulse to create Yom Yerushalayim immediately after the Six-Day War of 1967 seemed self-evident. After all, we longed for centuries to return to United Jerusalem and its holy places, and when we finally did, on June 7, 1967, the 28th day of the Hebrew month of Iyar, it seemed to many Jews around the world nothing short of a miracle. Paratroopers standing in awe at the wall remain one of the most indelible scenes of modern Jewish history. That moment permanently changed the state of Israel. Yom Rushalayim was intended to be the culmination of the Israeli high holiday season, the crowning moment of the Jewish people's transition from destruction to rebirth. And yet rather than a moment of culmination, Yom Rushalayim leaves much of Israeli society indifferent and often indignant about the questions it raises about the nation's direction a day that was intended to highlight both the unification of Jerusalem and the unity of the people of Israel, in practice does neither. Increasingly, the day represents a shift within the growing part of religious Zionism from mainstream Jewish nationalism to ultra-nationalist extremism. The most troubling expression of this transformation is the core new ritual of the day, the so-called March of the Flags, when young religious Zionists dance through the Muslim quarter in the old city, waving giant Israeli flags and often shouting anti-Arab slogans. The psalmist asks us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, yet the march incites hatred and risks the fragile peace of Jerusalem. Why has this day failed to unify Israelis around the vision of a united Jerusalem? And what does the rise of ultranationalism pretend for the future of Jerusalem and of Israel. What could this day have become instead? And how might it be restored as a day of hope and blessing for Israel and our neighbors? 
That's our theme for today. And Yossi, it's great to be with you. Uh, so much of your career is built around 67 Jerusalem thinking about this. I can't think, besides the fact that you're my partner, I can't think of a person I'd rather talk to about this. What? Let's, you know, let's, you know, as we always do here, before we philosophize and conceptualize, as you often tend to do, um, <laughs> what, what does as, as opposed to does, you and the rest and the rest of the Hartman Institute? <laughs> yeah, because we're, we're we more moats, you know. Like I, I, I <laughs> but you, I want to leave you your. <laughs> what does Yom Yerushalayim mean for you, what, personally? This is the day that changed my life. Uh, I was 14. I had just turned uh, 14. And three weeks later, I flew to Jerusalem with my father. That was our first trip. And that summer was a prolonged celebration of June 7th, 1967. Uh, the, the paratroopers at the wall shaped not only my my attachment to Israel and and probably uh, helped bring me to Israel eventually as a as a citizen, but it also shaped my Judaism, my sense of God's relationship with the Jewish people, with Jewish history. It helped heal in some ways my childhood Holocaust trauma or balance helped balance. Uh, for me personally, it was transformative. And my strongest memory is of the incredible unity that almost everyone experienced. It was a moment that we never experienced again. Maybe the Entebbe rescue comes close, but uh, it was almost a revelatory experience. And what was revealed was the unity and love that the Jewish people felt for its story. You know, Yossi, can I stop you for a second? I just did. But I want to stop you because it was very interesting. I thought I was asking a different question, and you very beautifully answered a different one. And I, I thought it's an I was old journalistic you, trick. <laughs> I see. <laughs> oh, I didn't think. Oh, I thought, I thought it was sincere. Um, I asked you what Yom Yerushalayim meant for you, and you answered to me what June 7th meant. They're very right. different questions, but they don't have to be. You answered, what was the moment when Jerusalem was reunified, how it changed your life? I was asking you, in many ways, today. Yeah, I can't, I can't begin there. When, when, I appreciate that. That's why your I, answer was better yes. than my question. And a good deal of the angst that I feel about Yom Yerushalayim today is in contrast to this overwhelming sense of awe and gratitude that I still experience on that day. So it doesn't belong to the past. I've kept continuity with that. And, you know, when I, you had mentioned earlier how so much of my writing career is really wrapped up in this story. And look, as you know, I devoted uh, 11 years to a book project uh, like Dreamers, which follows the lives of seven paratroopers who liberated the wall on that day and tells the story of what happened to Israel after the Six-Day War through these lives. And what that has to do with the day in particular is that for many years, especially as I was following their lives, what I did on every Yom Yerushalayim is participate as an observer 
in their commemoration. On Yom Yerushalayim, the three battalions that fought in Jerusalem gather each of them at their own separate memorial and commemorate their fallen friends. And the ceremony is just fantastic. And what you feel there is the unity, the lost unity, but it's there in microcosm, the unity that we experience during the war, because you have the full range of whoever you'll find in a paratrooper unit, religious and secular and left and right. And they're all there together. And that for me was in some sense a continuity of the initial experience of that day. You know, so it's like when I hear you talking, I hope you, this is not meant to be insulting. Um, you are anachronistic in the best sense of the term. Like, as I heard you, I heard Yossi the Dreamer. Oh, very much, very much. And I'm envious of it because if there's, you, we know that so much a part of what we do here at the Institute is about looking at reality and asking what ought it be? How do we develop a relationship with Israel as it can be? Um, and never to accept Israel as it is, and certainly not to accept what people make of Jerusalem. I want to tell you, Yossi, the one place that I personally fail to do that is on Yom Yerushalayim. I can't. Why? I don't even remember anymore, Yossi. Wow. Any joy in Yom Yerushalayim. Really? It's like I feel it was a day that I had, but it was taken from me. For me, Yom Yerushalayim is the, is the place where my dreams got shattered because it's so dominated by this overt, aggressive, ultra-nationalist spirit. Like the truth is, it has, it's something very tragic about it. And that's why I really appreciated you speaking because in many ways, if we're gonna reclaim the day, we're gonna have to reclaim it to what it can be. And maybe one day that it was, but there's the, I believe that in many ways, the story of Israel is gonna depend on the way we change, if, if and how we change this day because it's expressive, in my mind, of the worst of what we can do. And we don't have to do that. See, like, I celebrate Israel's sovereignty. I celebrate Zionism. I have a holiday for that. It's called Yom Atzmaut. I celebrate it. Independence Day. Independence Day. You know, and as Tal said in the podcast that you couldn't be on so beautifully, he says, you know, I want to have one day that there's no ifs and buts and, you know, oh, but what about this? And it's not persons. Leave me alone. I want one day where I get to simply say, thank you. This is the cup. I'm, I'm looking at this part of the cup. And it's, that's, he's, it's beautiful. And at that celebrate, I have that day. I don't need a second day. You know, there's, there's a law in our tradition that you're not supposed to add on the commandments. 613 is enough. You don't need to see us like, which is it? You're like, shouldn't be 614. You're not supposed to add additional ones. You're like, you know, do what you're this. You, you want, be creative, be creative within it. You don't have to add another one. And one of the reasons for that is that when you add, you're not adding. Very often it undermines and you're trying to make it different. And what's happened is that in Israel on Independence Day, I celebrate the freedom independence of the Jewish people. Yom Yerushalayim has become the day where too many Jews celebrate our dominance over others, celebrate our control of God, God's victory. They took it, and it's a reflection of what Jewish nationalism should never be. I don't want to be too extreme, but it's almost like a day of mourning. 
because I look at it and say, that's like every Yom Yerushalayim, I commit myself to a different Israel. It's not this day. And so when you speak about Jewish unity and so powerfully about our returning and God's return to history, there's so many beautiful things that it could have expressed. But right now, for me, it is the personification of what goes wrong when religion and nationalism combine with each other. And for me, the future of Israel, the future of the Israel that every part of my being is committed to sustaining, is to separating this toxic relationship between the two. And you see that toxicity precisely in the way Jerusalem Day is celebrated, precisely in its rituals. It's almost the model of what we shouldn't be. If I had to sum up my relationship to the day, I revere Yom Yerushalayim and I fear it. And I like very much your contrast between um, Independence Day and Jerusalem Day. It points out where Jerusalem Day has failed. Because on Independence Day, almost all of at least Jewish Israel suspends for one day, suspends ambivalence. It is a day of pure joy and gratitude. Yom Yerushalayim was supposed to be the culmination of that experience, and instead it's a day of profound ambivalence for many Israelis. And that ambivalence, for me, is really focused in two areas. And those are the two failures of Yom Yerushalayim, of the failures of, of what the day could have been, and in, to some extent was initially. The first failure is the dream of Jewish unity. Yom Yerushalayim truly was a peak moment in Jewish history that united Jews wherever they were. It triggered the Soviet Jewry uprising, the renaissance of Soviet Jewry. We have a million Jews and Soviet Jews in this country in large part because of that day. It not only transformed the state of Israel, it changed the diaspora as well. And yet, Yom Yerushalayim today, and especially, as you point out, the way in which it's expressed, accentuates our divides. It tears us apart. And the other failure is in what it says about how, uh, and related, is how we treat the Palestinians of Jerusalem. I'll give you one very small example from my neighborhood. French Hill borders the village of Isoia. And there's a line of trees that was planted all along the street from French Hill. And it stops, the trees stop, the moment the road turns into Isoia. No trees. And that, for me, symbolizes how we're still a divided city. If you're serious about being the sovereign in Jerusalem, continue the damn line of trees into Isoia. And that is the symbol in an almost banal way of where we have failed as sovereigns here. Now, when I think about this notion of being sovereign, Yom Yerushalayim is about being sovereign over Jerusalem. Or being sovereign, I want to be more precise, in Jerusalem. And you're right. Like, What does it mean to be sovereign in Jerusalem? Does it mean that I get to do whatever it is that I want to do? You know, that's one of the temptations of power and sovereignty and rights. 
You know, I have a right. What, a Jew doesn't have a right to march in Jerusalem? Like that would be the, what, I don't have a right? For 2,000 years, I couldn't march in Jerusalem. I don't have a right to march here. If they have a right to march, they march in my cities, they walk. I don't have a right to march in my capital. So it's all about my rights and sovereignty is about your ability to give expression to your, to manifest your rights, regardless of what other people feel. And, you know, when, you, when it comes to Yerushalayim, there's something very, very deep that Jerusalem wants to teach the idea of sovereignty. In our tradition, one of the meanings of Jerusalem is as it's called, there's, Jerusalem is not mentioned in the five books of Moses. You know, it's called the place, Hamakom. You know, Hamakom asher yishachen, asher yivchar Hashem l'shachen shmosham. The place that God will decide to inhabit God's name there. Because God does it, and all that will is God's name. It won't be God, God's self. But the the religious idea of Jerusalem being the place is that Jerusalem is endowed with holiness. And the idea of holiness is the idea: the more a place is holy, guess what happens, Yossi? The less a human being is allowed to be present there. You know, you're allowed to be in a regular. The holier something gets. You can't even go there. So the idea, if Jerusalem is the place, the notion that we express sovereignty with the fantasy of being sovereign over Jerusalem is antithetical to our tradition. You can't be sovereign over the holy. Jerusalem Day is not the celebration of West Jerusalem. It's the celebration of East Jerusalem. But what does a unified city mean? Is it that I take the West Jerusalem notion of sovereignty and instill it to East Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount, that I say, yeah, I'm just like I am the sovereign with my Knesset and my Supreme Courts on West Jerusalem, I'm going to take those models of nationalism and sovereignty and put it in this holy basin on this, this holy part. I, I think that we've lost something because what the unification of Jerusalem was supposed to mean, I believe, was not that sovereignty, secular sovereignty, was supposed to dominate and reshape our religious notion of sovereignty, but that it was maybe supposed to temper some of our notion of sovereignty in general. And you can't, there is no one who's sovereign over Jerusalem. Well, there's a very interesting tension that you're raising here, Daniel, which is the tension between the modern city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of a modern secular state, and the holy city. Um, I celebrate Israeli sovereignty over this city, the city that I live in. But the question is, what else is Jerusalem? And for me, there are really three Jerusalems, and I'm speaking now very practically, still in the realm of the modern city. There is Jewish slash Israeli Jerusalem. There is Palestinian Jerusalem. And there is what one could call international Jerusalem, or, or the, the dozens of Christian denominations that are headquartered here and revere this city. Uh, in that sense, Jerusalem is by far Israel's most cosmopolitan city, much more than Tel Aviv. We really are a city of the world. And so what does it mean to exercise sovereignty over these three very different cities? And uh, that's an open question. The way that I see the political reality here is that 
given the alternatives, uh, the best option is for continued Israeli sovereignty over this entity that we call the modern city of Jerusalem. How that's done, how we negotiate the relationship with the Palestinians, with Christianity and its presence here, those are precisely areas in which so far we have failed to be a wise sovereign in this city. But that doesn't undermine my appreciation, my gratitude for the fact that we are sovereign in this city. See, again, I, I wasn't even talking about that, you'll see, but I, I appreciate you adding it into the conversation because you'll prevent people from misunderstanding me. I wasn't talking, you know, I'm not getting into dividing sovereign. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking not about the question of who governs. I'm not talking about who governs. You're talking about yeah. a state of consciousness, really. A consciousness. Yeah. It's yeah. like, who governs? You know, when peace will be put forth, we'll decide whether Jerusalem could be divided, not divided, where divided, not. But that's not our issue right now. It is a state of mind. And the idea of Jerusalem as holy city says that your state of consciousness is that you're in the presence of God. And the closer you are to the presence of God, the less control you have, the less it's about expressing your power, your dominance. It's not about your dominance. It's about contracting yourself in the presence of God. And what we have here, this is the great paradox, because who is keeping Jerusalem day today? Only the religious Zionists, the ultra-Orthodox. That's not, you know, Jerusalem is holy. There is no Jerusalem unification day. You know, for most Israelis, the victory and the joy that you express, that's Yom Atzmaut. The ones who are commemorating are those who are saying, yes, I believe that there is a religious dimension to the reunification of Jerusalem. But what they are doing, and here I want to be precise, what they're doing is that when religion and nationalism combine, who wins or who dominates? When I grew up in Jerusalem, Jerusalem Day's primary ritual was the saying of Hallel, thanks to God. Hmm. It was in Shul. You went to Shul. It was just a purely religious day in which you gave expression to the religious dimension of now having political control over the holiest place in our tradition of, of, in a certain sense, even of God coming back from exile. Like that idea that you actually have the honor to be in control of this holy space. And also the deep idea that when we're in control of it, we Jews now have religious freedoms here that we were never afforded before we had that. And so there's a very deep religious dimension to it. But the prayer and the Hallel are now been replaced by drums and flags. And you know what? And where do you want to march? If you want to march in, you want, you want to be in the Kotel, you're marching through the, where I'm telling, it's like I'm saying to you, I dominate you. My God beat your God. It's nationalism controlling religion instead of religious piety tempering nationalism. Yom Yerushalayim is one day, but it's a symptom of a larger story that we have to be very, very careful of. And you know, Daniel, go back to June 7th, 1967. The paratroopers didn't go to the wall first. The breakthrough was on the Temple Mount. They're gathered on the Temple Mount, and you know the first question they're asking, including the religious paratroopers among them, where's the wall? Now, think about the tenderness of that moment. These are the warriors who have just conquered the peak, literally and metaphorically, 
the Temple Mount. That is the holiest place. That's the ultimate symbol of sovereignty, of Jewish power. And where do they want to go? To a wall, the place of our (laughs) brokenness, the place where Jews for 2,000 years wept and poured their hearts out to God from a place of exile. And they go down to the wall and they throw themselves against the stones. And this is where they unburden themselves after two days of fighting and the losses that they experienced in their units. They bring their victory to the place of our defeat. And in a way, they're paying homage to the spirit of the exile. And who are the paratroopers? Don't forget the paratroopers were the ultimate Israeli, the ultimate new Jew, the new Hebrew. And at the moment of their greatest victory, they're throwing themselves at the symbol of exile, of powerlessness. And there's something in that moment of such great spiritual humility. And think of the photograph that David Rubinger captured of the paratroopers standing before the wall. And the look on their faces is of longing. There's not a look of ecstasy and of aggression. That came in later. I know. That came in to these kids who didn't experience that moment. That's the yeah. spiritual corruption that set in. You know, and in many ways, and maybe I'll add this and then we'll turn to Ilana. You spoke about your experience of June 7th and the deep sense of unity that it has. As we turn to our audience around the world, and what does this day mean? I want to get really practical. Don't give up on Jerusalem. You know, it's one of the reasons why the new Kotel is so important. You know, every, oh, the new Kotel is important to diaspora jury. The truth is it's not. You mean the place of egalitarian prayer? Like, I wish it was. I wish it was such a big deal. It's not. You know, who's really caring? The notion that we as a people should have one place where you go through with one entrance for all Jews, not two entrances or three, one entrance for all Jews, and where we have a shared plaza, where we could all stand and we could all celebrate the fact that as Jewish, we have something, one place in the world that belongs to all of us. And then from that plaza, we separate to different sections of the wall where we get to commemorate and give expression to our different Judaisms, because while we're one people, Judaism doesn't unite us. So that rhythm, like, you know, as you were talking, I could almost envision a messianic moment of Jews actually caring and having one united central place. We come together, from it we separate in respect, from our separate places we come back to the shared plaza. Maybe that will bring us back, Yossi. Uh, to June 7th. It's not about where we could march our flags and who we could shout at and how much power we have. There is a humility in the presence of the holy, but there's also a celebration of recognizing that there's something very powerful when a people have a uniting and a unified place and experience. Beautiful. And one day I wish Jerusalem could return to that. Yossi, let's just take a break for a minute and then Ilana will join us. Can faith and ethics heal our fractured, technology-soaked society? Micah Goodman is an Israeli public intellectual, a leading voice on Judaism, Zionism, and the challenges and opportunities facing Israel and world Jewry. 
Jonathan Haidt, is named one of the top global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine and considered among the top 25 most influential living psychologists. Tune in as they unpack why liberal society seems to be ripping at the seams and suggest the ways in which faith and ethics could mend it. And then ask these leading thinkers your questions during an open Q&A. Join us on June 1st, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time for this free virtual event as part of Ideas for Today, our curated offering of courses on contemporary Jewish issues led by leading scholars. To register, go to shalomhartman.org forward slash events. Ilana, it's wonderful to be with you again. And before I ask you what you want to teach, um, we had our 50th last time and you were in here. Um, I can't tell you how many people said, oh, I loved your 50th, but where was Ilana? Like, you know, I said, what am I chopped liver? But it was, uh, Ilana, it's been a great journey. And I love the experience that we have with each other. And uh, I wanted you to maybe give a bracha or to share first your feelings about, because this is technically your 50th. Yes. You know? <laughs> well, so what I want to say is this is actually very me because the 50th, you know, it's like celebrating the culmination of something. And my personality is, all right, so what happens the day after the 50th when we start again? So we're after the Jubilee, we start from the beginning. That's me, right? When I finish a tractate of Talmud, it's start the next one immediately, right? So I think this ended up being kind of fitting. Um, oh, I will boy. say it's hard for me to believe, you know, this is this is Ecclesiastes Alana. Um, the, it is remarkable to think about how many people have come up to me when I'm in different places and said, I feel like I know the three of you because I listen to the podcast. And that sense of intimacy, I have to say, I'm, I'm so proud of and happy about and the, the kinds of things that we talk about. I just think it's just a joy. It's a joy and it's a privilege. So I'm, I'm really... I'm excited for, you know, the next, the next 50, right? Getting to the amen, next Jubilee. Amen, amen, Yeah. There's an easy route here, right? Like there, none of us are in disagreement about, you know, the importance of not lording things over people, right? So I, I can go the easy route and I'm going to start with the easy route. And that is Maimonides, Laws of Kings and Wars, chapter 12. And I'm saying it like everybody knows what I'm saying, but when you hear it, you might know what I'm saying, Right. Chapter 12, section four in uh, the Mishneh Torah, the Maimonides uh, legal tome, where he says, and he's quoting earlier rabbinic sources, the sages and the prophets did not long for the days of the Messiah because they wanted to rule the world or because they wanted to have dominion over non-Jews or because they wanted the nations to exalt them or, and I love that he adds this, or because they wanted to eat, drink, and be merry, right? We're not Epicureans. Rather, why did the sages and the prophets long for the days of the Messiah? Because they wanted to have time for Torah and its wisdom. They wanted to not have a situation where someone would oppress them or force them to be idle from Torah. And all this is so that they can merit the world to come. And I just think, you know, this is the low-hanging fruit in the sense of, yeah, of course. <laughs> like, that's the religious... The religious approach is supposed to be power is a means to an end, right? I remember a few years ago, you know, Danielle, you and I, we were with the group and Yossi, I think you were in this round table with Tal and Michal and Yehuda for one of our Iron Gage 
roundtables, and we were talking about sovereignty over the Temple Mount, and we were saying how there's, you know, Danielle, you and I especially, in our own different ways, right, you and I especially were sort of pointing to the fact that, you know, holiness, kidusha is actually anti-human sovereignty, which is something you basically mentioned here as well. And Tal looks at us and he says, yeah, but if we didn't have sovereignty, you wouldn't actually be able to pray at the place below, right? You wouldn't be able, as, as Yossi says, they wouldn't be able to go to that wall. And he was expressing power as a means to an end and a means to a religious end, a means to a cultural end, a means to an emotional end, right? And, and an identity end. But I actually, I, I don't want to stop there because I think that there is a story here that is about the question, to your point, new Jew, Yassi, how do we bring some of that diaspora theology in with us to our sovereign state of mind? Because this is about religion. This is about theology. And so I want to revisit a text that we talk about a lot at Hartman in terms of what it meant for the rabbis and the prophets too, to re-envision theology in light of the history through which they themselves were experiencing. And I want to ask, you know, they're telling us a story of how their theology changed in exile and in diaspora. And I want to know what happens when we return from exile and diaspora, when we return to sovereignty. Do we just snap back to the old theology or do we take something with us? So here's the text. It is the Babylonian Talmud, Yoma, page 69b, which, you know, Hartman people should have tattooed on their brains, right? Goes like this. Rabbi Joshua, the son of Levi said, why were the sages of the generations that were essentially second temple generations, why were they called the great assembly, right? It's like, what's so great about the great assembly? It's like the beginning of a joke, but it's not a joke. It is because they returned God's crown to its former glory. In what way did they do this? Well, quite frankly, we actually saw an atrophy of the relationship between God and the Jewish people. And we'll see how. Moses in Deuteronomy 10.17 calls God the great, the mighty, and the awe-inspiring God. Hakel, Hagadol, Hagibor, Vahanura. But then when Jeremiah speaks generations later and he's witnessing the destruction of the first temple, he actually doesn't say all of those accolades. He only says the great and the mighty, Jeremiah 32, 18. He leaves out God's awe-inspiring quality because he says, what do you mean? Babylonians are literally dancing around in victory and making a mockery of God's sanctuary. God's not awe-inspiring in this moment. They're not afraid of God. They're not awed by God. They're making a mockery of God's temple. So he couldn't say that God was awe-inspiring. And then it continues as the Jews are in the Persian exile. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, says, well, I can't even say mighty because I see God's children are being enslaved by other, by other nations. How could you say that God's mighty? Where is God's might? What is God doing that's mighty? Right. So you see this moment of 
deep anxiety. We have this theology of God that what God does is God intervenes and saves. And not only that, God conquers. God conquers. God doesn't allow for human history to beat down on the Jews. And when it does, and when people do, we say, well, what? Where's God being so mighty and being so, why aren't people awed by God? And so why are the men of the great assembly so great? They came and they said, on the contrary, let me tell you what God's gvura, God's might is. God restrains God's self. God conquers God's inclination Hmm. by exercising patience towards those nations that are persecuting us and not punishing them immediately. And therefore, we should, we should call God mighty. We can call God Gibor because God's might is that God holds God's self back. What about God's awesomeness? Well, do you think the Jews would be around if there wasn't fear of God, given how many people want to get rid of us? And they just redefined it. Their theology was, instead of looking at God as a conqueror, look at God as one who restrains God's self. And thus, we also have to imitate God. Instead of looking at God as awe-inspiring because God destroys, look at God as awe-inspiring because God sustains and makes sure that people don't get hurt. And I really wonder to myself, what happens when you return to a state of power? Do you just say, you know, that whole thing where we said God is mighty because God holds God's self back and implicitly that's how we should be, that was just for the diaspora. That was like a that was like a stopgap. We just needed to keep people in the game, keep people in the theological game. But now that we're back, God is back to being mighty and strong and a destroyer, right? Absolutely not. Come on. Absolutely not. And so I think there's a theological challenge right here, right? Of how do you bring, not that we sovereignty, of course it brings a different aspect of theology and it brings back God the mighty, that God gives us power and that God takes care of us and that God makes sure. Of course it brings that back, but don't lose this piece. This piece is so humbling. So how do we do a mixture between them when we know that people are actually just prone to one or the other? Ilana, uh, the the text is, is beautiful. And the lesson is that when we make Aliyah, it doesn't mean we forget all the Torah of the diaspora and how do they intervene. But one of the challenges of Israel, Ilana, is that the Jews for 2000 years, God's power, the way God expressed God's love for us was by controlling God. And secretly we kept on saying, God, stop controlling yourself so much. (laughs) You know, could you actually show up for our fight? And one of the things that Israel means for the Jewish people, one of the things is that we are victorious again. That's the challenge. I'm right with you, but this is what we're fighting against. We, we deserve to be victorious. We deserve to celebrate both our power and for those who believe God's return of God's covenantal relationship to the Jewish people. So how do you hold those two? And I want to tell you, on Yom Yerushalayim, Ilana, do you know what we learn here in Israel? Diaspora Jews could maintain the tension that you're mentioning. Israeli religious Jews... Unfortunately, I don't know how to do it. They don't, you know, we always say we want to have the little bit of this and that. And, and, and there's some, it, they just can't. They, the, the victory, the power, it's like a, it's a narcotic and they can't get off of it. So I want to ask a psychological question. 
which is, is it possible that it's harder to bring in that diaspora humility when you're actually so afraid that you're going to lose that sovereignty? That somewhere deep down, you are afraid that someone will take it from you. And it's expressed in all these little ways, terror attacks, the way that the the world could looks be. at Israel. I, Even I, though I, I think I mean, that, I, I I'm with you. I think it could be, but I don't think that's the primary thing here. I have to tell you. Yeah, listen. Here, I, the people I who think are people marching. Are complex. I think so too, but I think here, what you're challenging us, and this goes back to a core feature of Hartman, is we really need to keep both communities learning each other's Judaisms in a far more vibrant way. Because I don't think here it is, you know, it's the precariousness of our existence. Most of these people who are marching aren't experiencing precarious. That's not their experience. I think it's coming from another place. But the Torah that you taught needs to find greater roots in Israel. And to know that in Israel, for some of us, it's countercultural. And that's part of the climb. Yossi, what was that sigh? What wasn't that sigh, Danielle? This is Yossi. Wow. That's the title of his memoir, is Sai. <laughs> no, what is it? What, what are you feeling, Yossi? That for me, what this day evokes is, um, in some ways, it sums up my life. You know, my great joy and my great challenge is being a citizen of Jerusalem. With all that, with, all, with the whole package. The whole package. I'm going to use my prerogative uh, to end with that. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by M. Lewis Gordon, with thanks to Alex Dillon. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes. To help more people discover the show, you can also write to us at forheavensake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. See you in two weeks, and thanks for listening.